0: July, 1675, France. It's the reign of Louis XIV, the Sun King. He was called this for a variety of reasons. He was flamboyant, a bold personality with grand aspirations for the growing French Empire. He used the sun as his personal symbol, and even portrayed the role of Apollo in a ballet. The message was clear. In his actions, words, and imagery... He was an absolute monarch in full control of his empire. Like the sun, his rays touched all corners of France. But every sun casts a shadow. It's inevitable, and a sun that bright casts some long and dark shadows. Indeed, it's in these shadows that our story today takes place. a story of intrigue, backstabbing and alchemy, all against a backdrop of one of the most striking royal courts in European history it all begins with a trial. Not a very fair one at that. Madame de Bronvilliers, a French noblewoman, is accused of murdering her father and two brothers in a conspiracy with her lover, an army captain named Godin de Saint-Croix. More than that, there were rumours she'd killed people in a hospital. The method? Poison. Her trial was a bit of a sham, to say the least. After being tortured, included being force-fed water, she was executed and burnt at the stake. In that order. Sainte-Croix didn't face punishment because he died of natural causes three years earlier. But this trial captivated some in the public and prominent figures, most of all the king himself. King Louis became convinced that someone was trying to poison him, and rumor upon rumor came out of the woodwork resulting in a scandal that would rock the world of Enlightenment France, showing that it wasn't perhaps as enlightened as its denizens would like to think. Two years later, another woman was arrested. In 1677, Magdalene de Lagrange was arrested on charges of forgery and murder. She appealed to the Marquis de Lavoie. You may remember him from our investigation into the story of the man in the iron mask as the guy who gave Saint-Mars the charge of watching him. Lagrange said that if she'd be shown clemency, she would inform on a web of secrets that went far beyond herself. Louvois went to the king, who was immediately panicked by the thought of a cabal of poisoners running wild in his court. The chief of Paris's police... Gabriel Nicolas de la incidentally considered one of the first founders of a modern police force, long before Robert Peel, was tasked with rooting out and rounding up all of those who could be implicated. And the list was long. It grew exponentially because everyone who was arrested agreed to inform on someone further up the chain, creating a spiralling route all the way to the king's own inner circle. It seemed that everyone in the royal court had gotten a little too ambitious and wanted a quick route to success. The most common offence was purchasing, and apparently using, so-called inheritance powders, a not-so-subtle slang term for poison. This wasn't the least of the offences. Divination, séances, use of alchemical aphrodisiacs, and black masses involving human sacrifice. Quite the escalation there, but one must remember that a lot of these confessions and informants were enticed by torture, as much as the prospect of clemency, so their reliability is sketchy. Regardless, this went all the way to the top. When a midwife come fortune teller named Catherine Monvoisin, called La Voisin, was arrested, she was tortured and came up with a list of names that sent the king into a fit of paranoia. On that list were such figures as the Countess of Soissons, the Duchess of Bouillon, the Duke of Luxembourg, and the king's own favourite mistress, one Madame de Montspin. Apparently, Monspain hadn't just kept the king's attention through affection. She'd bewitched him using black magic. With the help of a priest, and apparently by indulging in human sacrifice, she'd kept rival lovers from the king, and it showed. They'd end up having seven children together. No evidence for this beyond the confession, of course, and as it happens, Monspain avoided ever having to suffer the indignity of a trial. Others weren't as lucky. 442 suspects. 367 orders of arrests. Of those condemned, 36 were executed, 5 sentenced to slave galleys, and 23 to exile. This excludes those who died in custody or by torture or suicide. Additionally, many accused were never even brought to trial, but placed outside of the justice system and imprisoned for life by a lettre de cachet. The letter de cachet were effectively royal decrees that could not be appealed or overturned, a great example of the absolutism that dominated French politics of the era. And as we made mention of right back when we started this podcast, one of those implicated in this scandal was one Eustache Durgé de Cavoy. He had been disinherited from his noble family, and he'd chosen to celebrate Good Friday with a black mass, and since made his living working as an alchemist selling poisons and aphrodisiacs. He also mysteriously disappears when the trials ended, leading many to suspect him of having been the infamous man in the Iron Mask. We covered that in that episode. The official investigation ended in 1678, and Lavoison was burnt at the stake in 1680. Between the start and end of the trial, a special court had been established, the Court of Burning, but it was re-abolished in 1682 because the scandal was getting increasingly hard to keep private. Since such high-up figures were involved, if the news broke, it could topple the political establishment of France. After all, how could the nobility claim a divine right if so many of them were apparently committing the most profane sins in the name of debauchery and personal advancement? Besides, this was the reign of the Sun King. He needed his authority to be unquestionable, and as such could ill afford a coven of traitors hanging around his inner circle, not least sleeping with the worst of them himself. The scandal had far-reaching consequences, by the way. When the Countess of Soissons was banished, her son eventually left France himself. The personal stain had got to him too, and he left to find a career in the armies of France's enemies. The man, who would be known as Prince Eugen, Prince Eugene of Savoy, became the field marshal for the Holy Roman Empire and the Austrian Habsburg dynasty, and would be the greatest obstacle to the Sun King's military ambitions, as well as arguably the greatest military mind of his era. And all of that started from this exercise in paranoia and superstition. So today we take a look at a lesser-known incident in history, the Affair of the Poisons. This week on Demystified, we look at the Affair of the Poisons. Now, to tell this story, we do need to go all the way back to the figure who sits at its centre. Louis XIV, the Sun King. He's the impetus for all this, after all. It's his court that's involved, it's his drive to stamp out any threats to the image of his reign that led to the zealous prosecution of anyone even remotely involved. And that's a big part of this story as well. Image. You see, part of the reason the king maintained such a popular profile was he projected an image of strength. He was an absolutist at a time of intellectual turmoil in the world. Thinkers were increasingly starting to challenge the ideas of the Middle Ages, which have now since long gone. In England, for instance, the English Civil War of the 1640s smashed the idea that a king had supreme control over their parliament, and religious movements like the Levellers even spread the radical idea that peasants and nobles could be viewed as equals spiritually, and that the clergy weren't necessary for attaining grace. This led to a complete 180 in France. Seeing how England fell to a brief but prominent period of republicanism and puritanism, meant that now more than ever it was vital to project the idea that the king was the captain of the ship of state, and disobeying that captain or going behind his back would merit the worst punishments. As such, the affair of the poisons could have been particularly damaging to this image of a glorious, pristine reign. Let's talk a little bit more about that central figure, the Sun King himself, Louis XIV. He holds the record for the longest verified reign of any independent monarch in history at 72 years, 110 days, and was a huge figure in European history. It was he who had Versailles built into the fabulously opulent structure that we know today, and it was all part of his plan to centralise French nobility. You see, France had for the longest time been operating under the feudal system by which individual lords swear fealty to an overlord, maybe a duke or a count, and then they have fealty to the king, and the king, in theory, to God and acts as his vessel on earth. France in the medieval era was the ur-example of feudalism, and as such it was pretty seriously decentralised. Individual lords had a very long leash for acting how they pleased. Louis, however, was a fan of the concept of the divine right of kings. As explained... Basically, what this means is is that the king is divinely ordained by God to rule, and therefore his word is an extension of the will of God and is therefore unquestionable. This idea wasn't super popular with some of the nobility. On the one hand, it did mean that they too had some of that divine right, since they were also clearly blessed with providence, i.e. the massive inherited wealth that came with living in a post-feudal society. On the other hand, though, if the king couldn't be questioned, what if he did something they didn't like? Unsurprisingly, Louis had dealt with a noble's rebellion in his younger years, and almost certainly had a deep mistrust of his aristocracy. Whilst they made up the vast majority of his friends and relatives, he did have fairly reasonable grounds to suspect that some of them had malintentions towards him. This led to him becoming a little bit paranoid. He was also reportedly a vain man, which makes sense when you see him repeatedly comparing himself to the sun in all of his imagery. His other defining quality was bellicosity, He was a man obsessed with war, avenging perceived slights for the sake of obtaining yet more glory in the battlefield. Overall, a complex figure, who sought to glorify himself and France, but ultimately left a great deal to be desired on the domestic front. The palace culture of Versailles is also worth an examination. Louis deliberately cultivated an over-the-top style at his new court, luxurious gifts from far-flung emissaries displayed prominently, exotic animals paraded around the menagerie, newest fashions and tastes, he wanted to show that the way he ran things was far different from previous monarchs. To that end, he enforced elaborate courtly rituals, which became a tool whereby he could tell which nobles were willing to kowtow to him and which weren't. He even effectively made the creme de la creme of French nobility live around or within the walls of Versailles, tying them to him and one central location. Between this and the abolition of private armies outside the royal army, and the overall replacement of the old militarised nobility with new bureaucratic nobles, who had mostly been recently ennobled, unlike the entrenched old guard warrior aristocracy, Louis pulled all the power and politics of France to within the walls of Versailles, And oh boy, if those walls could talk, I'm sure we'd hear a great many more mysteries coming out of them. But with all of that context, let's look at the Affair of the Poisons. What do we know going into the history? We know that France is ruled by an autocratic megalomaniac who has had some decent successes under his belt, but whose primary domestic objective is centralising power and replacing the old guard of the aristocracy with toadies, and is receiving mixed responses from those being replaced, at least those who aren't willing to get with the times. To this end, Louis is bound to be constantly looking over his shoulder for all of the people whose influence he eroded to build this grand legacy. Enter Marie-Madeleine Marguerite de Brinvilliers, Hell of a name, huh? A French aristocrat and, if the charges are to be believed, a murderer. In 1675, she was brought before a court on the charge of murder via poison of her father and two of her brothers. The reason? So that she and her lover, the army captain, down de Saint Croix, could inherit their estates and live comfortably for the rest of their lives. Now, this supposedly happened way back in 1666. Saint Croix died in 1672 and so couldn't be brought to trial. This didn't stop the French justice system attempting to wring a confession out of Brinvilliers. She was tortured for said confession. And this, along with the evidence supposedly found on Saint croix at the time of his death, was apparently enough to prove her guilt and she was sentenced to death. As I mentioned before, executed and then burned at the stake. Got some braces kind of approach, you know. Branvilliers was executed in 1676, but the most shocking part of the whole thing? She was an aristocrat. A minor aristocrat, but still one a member of the upper crust, no matter how minor or insignificant, and this gave credence to some interesting rumours that had been circling around the royal court. After Brinvilliers' trial and execution, a number of other investigations were opened into similar accusations of poisoning amongst members of the nobility. Now... Whether these rumours had started because of Brinvilliers' trial, or her trial exposed existing rumours, is kind of hard to tell. It's always going to be a little bit chicken and egg with these sorts of things, especially when those using the rumours to implicate their rivals will of course always maintain that they were long-standing rumours. We'll have to just see what the evidence suggests. The next big trial came in 1677, when Magdalene de Lagrange was accused of forgery and murder. The big shock came when Lagrange attempted to sway Louvois, who was overseeing the case, with potential intel on other criminal goings-on in the royal court. Louvois went to the king, who got De La Rainie, the police chief, on in the investigation. The king, as discussed before, was always looking for an excuse to weed out the less loyal of his nobles, and this was it. Again, hard to tell whether Louis was genuinely afraid of being poisoned by them, or if he was simply looking for a good excuse to do a bit of purging. Either way, he asked Delarini to root out the poisoners in his court. But what Deleraine got was almost more interesting. With each arrest and each interrogation, he kept getting more and more lurid accounts: witchcraft, seances, divination, black magic, satanic rituals. The more he investigated, the weirder it got it also started involving more and more and more important individuals, until the scandal started to embroil those actually related to the king, or, in the prime case, his lover, Madame de Montespan. The important thing to consider here, by the way, is that huge swathes of these accusations could have been entirely made up. And of course, I don't literally believe the stories of dark magic. What I do mean, though, is that it's a bit like a terrible game of musical chairs, You don't want to be the one left without the chair when the music stops, so if the king's violent guard dogs pull you into the Bastille and threaten to burn you to death if you don't give them information, what do you do? You tell them that some noble you don't like who's just one step ahead of you in the royal conga line is practicing something far worse than what you did. So we start with purchasing aphrodisiacs, oh no, that other guy bought poison, oh well, that other guy, he used magic, oh well, that magic was dark magic, oh yeah, but that other guy was doing satanic rituals, and you start with a minor noble, which becomes fairly old school nobles, which becomes the court favourites, which becomes the relatives of the king, so long as you pass the buck to someone more important and accuse them of a worse crime, you might get off light by comparison. It's worth thinking about. But back to the matter at hand. It started spiralling violently out of control. Soon enough, everyone was tattling on everyone. Apparently, damn near the whole court had been buying potions and poisons, a lot of them from one Eustache Dorger de the disgraced noble scion with a penchant for the alchemical. It was a bit like a drug bust. They'd catch a distributor who, under threat of death, would then inform on the clients, thus leading them further up the royal food chain. Someone like Decavoy was a relative small fry within the court itself, despite his apparently indispensable poisons. But by learning who he'd sold the poisons to, the police, such as they were at the time, could follow the trail into the deepest heart of the court. And of course, all of this happened with the explicit permission of the king. In that moment, it seems, his number one priority was finding out exactly whom was poisoning whom. There seemed to be two main flavours of the poisoning – Either they were trying to bump off a lover to collect the inheritance, hence the term inheritance powder to mean poison, or killing a rival in the court to advance their own position. Now, getting to the real meat of the mystery, did any of these accusations hold water? Well, it's very difficult to know. The vast majority of the evidence seems to come from confessions from prisoners, and this was at a time when torture to extract a confession was the modus operandi for basically every judicial system in Europe, and those were ten a penny. Modern evidence, by the way, has shown time and time again that torture is NOT an effective method of extracting information. This is because you always go into the interrogation with inherent bias. You think you know who was buying the poison, you just need a confirmation via confession. So you start locking a person's feet into iron boots designed to crush them, or screwing their thumbs into thin slivers or force-feeding them water, or any one of a myriad of horrifying torture methods. Then they'll start saying anything, whether it's true or not. They have no idea what you're talking about in the beginning, but by the end of the torture session, they're saying whatever name you want them to, whatever will make you stop, whether it's true or not. Congratulations, a forced confession. Is it worth anything, practically speaking? Maybe not. Is it worth something in terms of your investigation? Nah, now you're thinking. On top of that, plenty of people within the court had reasons for selling their fellow nobles up the river. Even the king was getting in on it. Remember those letter de cash? Effectively, if the king decided he thought you were guilty, he could just bypass the need for things like a fair trial altogether and to straight up banish you. No appeal, no trial, no do-over. Straight out of the country, just like that. And wouldn't you know it, the king availed himself of the opportunity to rid himself of some of the people he saw as a threat to his power. What constituted that threat is debatable. Was it the legitimate threat of being poisoned? Well, sure, there was that. From evidence at the time, we can see that Louis was somewhat actually afraid of being poisoned. And how can you blame the man when he's learning, day by day, that more and more of those he trusts, getting closer and closer to his own inner circle and flesh and blood, are apparently all stone-cold killers. But it was more than that. You see, what arguably both prompted and ended the scandal was just that. Scandal. As outlined earlier, the king had a delicate and meticulously crafted persona to maintain, the unflappable absolute monarch who has total control over his subjects, including the nobility. At first, he was terrified that his nobles would go behind his back and start trying to invoke dark powers to murder each other, not just for the obvious moral reasons, for the practical reason, that if anyone ever found out, it would expose his lack of control over them. Later on, though, he began to fear a different kind of exposure, as the trials became more and more prominent and the accusations more and more lurid, they became harder and harder to keep under wraps. Sooner or later, Jacques de Blog on the street would know that the woman the king was sleeping with was using love potions to charm him and poisons to keep her other lovers at bay. This would show that the royal court was rotten all the way to the top. Even though the king had tried to limit papal power in his realm, the average Frenchman at the time would be livid To learn that those supposedly above him in the Pecking Order were flagrantly committing acts of gross blasphemy. As such, the whole thing had basically come to an end by 1682. Thirty six people were executed in all for their roles in the various dark deeds. Whether they'd poisoned a rival, drugged a lover, or enacted a dark sacrament for access to unspeakable powers, they were all traitors to the king and they were all treated as such. What's more interesting to me, though, is those who weren't killed or died in custody. Those who were imprisoned for life were banished from the realm. Most of those figures are the ones who were more important to the king. Remember how in the Man in the Iron Mask episode we talked about why the king kept him alive? Noble blood, perhaps, at some level. The king doesn't want to kill these nobles per se, but they are opposing his glorious solar rule and so the only way to remove them is to just get rid of them. If you kill them, it teaches peasants that nobles are fair game for the justice system. If you fully spare them, you miss a valuable opportunity to keep your courtiers on their toes and prune the tree, as it were. So, imprison them, or banish them using royal prerogative. The courts get to keep saying, We're impartial, it's the king, and you get to rid yourself of troublesome aristocrats. Win-win. The superstition element also can't be undersold before we fall far too down the rabbit hole of cynicism, The average Frenchman of the 1600s, noble or common, would have probably had a cursory belief in things like séances and black masses and contacting evil entities in exchange for power. If these nobles are really transgressing such established norms, then I, the French king, need to put a stop to this. My plan to integrate the nobles are all well and good, but I can't have devil-worshipping murderers in my court. Both angles are worth consideration, which we'll do just now. So, what do I think of the affair of the poisons? Was there anything to it? Probably something. I'm not a fan of phrases like, no smoke without fire, and I like to be sure of the evidence before I jump in on something. But to me, it seems a little too weird to be a fully self-serving event. Why would one trial of an obscure noblewoman over something that was obviously the equivalent of a life insurance scam be the sudden catalyst for a surge of moral crusading? I think there was some genuine element of someone's trying to poison the king and we need to stop them involved. But aside from that, I also do think there was a massive deal of politicking involved. I mean, come on, the whole thing is based around just that. It's French nobles plotting against each other, being discovered, and then attempting to play innocent and use the trials to politic against each other again. I think the king's role in the whole proceedings follows that analysis too, a little of all the columns. On the one hand, given the common beliefs of the age, I think the king wouldn't have taken an accusation of something like performing a black mass lightly. Equally, man, isn't this a convenient excuse to do a little bit of hedge trimming with your less loyal nobles? We know from his practices in the royal court that Louis was constantly checking which nobles were currying his favour. He made it the case that nobles basically had to wait on him hand and foot to be entitled to prestige and power, and took daily walks to see who would turn up and who wouldn't, and used that as a gauge for who could or could not be an effective toady. With that in mind, surely the Sun King would have had the presence of mind to use this as a chance to rid himself of some of his more troubling nobles. He didn't really want hanging around the court anymore. This did end up being a bit of a double-edged sword, however. As we mentioned in the intro, Prince Eugen, one of the greatest generals of the era, was vociferous in his opposition to France, in no small part as a result of the humiliation and banishment of his mother during the Affair of the Poisons, which transferred to him. Is there a lesson to be learned from all of this? Uh, Don't jump to hasty conclusions, I guess? The logical leaps from This one noble maybe poisoned her family, to there's a group of devil-worshipping poisoners killing off their rivals in the royal court, were pretty staggering, but made nonetheless. Some may use that line, no smoke without fire, but I hate that kind of logic. That being said, I'm absolutely certain there was some poisoning going on, mostly because it's a royal court that's kind of the parcel of the whole thing. That doesn't mean that one has to go full crazy with it and make those wild assumptions, but that's also not really what King Louis wanted. The whole reason the investigations ended was that the secret was becoming too difficult to keep. The status of these people involved meant that if the secrets ever got out, it could foment an uprising of an unparalleled zeal. As such, the king decided to shut it down before the information became too difficult to contain. So maybe the other lesson to be learnt is to do with the legacies we build for ourselves. If you constantly hold yourself to the highest standard, don't get too hung up on failing from time to time. The Sun King had his glorious reputation to maintain, and it ran headlong into the fact that both he and his court were only human, loath as any of them were to admit it. Humans have the capacity for acts of great kindness and great coldness, and pretending that we're all one or the other is to ignore a large aspect of our potential for good or for evil. The king assumed he was the former, a fully grand and just being of infinite wisdom and power he saw his enemies as the latter, a den of snakes hiding in the grass of his court. Could it be argued that this worldview almost necessarily led to the affair of the poisons? Because if these poisons didn't exist, they'd have to be invented to juxtapose against the king's self-image. I'll leave that for you to decide. This episode of Demystified was written, recorded, and produced by me, Ashley Stiles, with hosting by Wizard Studios. Music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to productioncrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.